A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you've joined us on the program today. We're going to be talking with Dave Kopel, Research Director at the Independence Institute, here in just a minute or two. Uh, about a very important case that the Supreme Court is now weighing whether or not to accept a a challenge to Maryland's ban on so-called assault weapons, a ban, by the way, that has been upheld by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals on what I think is, flimsy doesn't even begin to describe it. Uh, In essence, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Maryland's ban on the most commonly sold rifle in the country today is perfectly fine, even though we have a constitutional right to keep and bear arms, because according to the Fourth Circuit, AR-15s and other semi-automatic rifles are like machine guns, and therefore fall outside of the scope of the Second Amendment. Yeah. Again, we're going to talk about this with Dave Kopel in just a moment. Before we do, however, with the political pressure of the left and the woke mob that is the Democrat Party these days, our society is in danger of becoming controlled by the cancel culture elites. Since when have the founders of our Constitution or the creators of the American flag or figures like Dr. Seuss or anything else you can dream of become anti-American? There's never been a better time in our nation's history to stand up against this woke mob and fight back. And you can do just that with this exclusive offer that I'm giving my listeners and viewers for a limited time only. Now is your chance to win a signed picture by President Trump himself. That's right. Not only will we be taking a stand against the radical left, but you'll be entering to win a piece of history. All you have to do is text the word Trump to 55404 today to enter. That's T-R-U-M-P to 55404. And you can join the millions of Americans in standing up for President Trump and canceling the radical left once and for all. Paid for by the National Republican Senatorial Committee. All right, so let's get to our conversation with uh, Dave Kopel. I'm really excited about this. This has been a story we've talked about this case a couple of times before, but the reason why I wanted to get Dave on the show to talk about it is because he is the author of an amicus brief that was just filed with the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, when we were talking with Alan Gottlieb of the Second Amendment Foundation about this case not long ago, uh, Alan brought up, he's calling it the scholar's brief. Uh, and it's not just Dave uh, who is a part of this. There are a number of other Second Amendment scholars who have laid out uh, their legal rationale for the court to hear this issue, even though the Supreme Court turned away a challenge to Maryland's assault weapons ban just a few years ago. Let's uh, delve into this with Dave Copel, Research Director at the Independence Institute. Take a look and a listen. Dave, it's so good talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us here on the program today. I am happy to be here and happy you are uh, continuing uh, in many more years of uh, radio and uh, broadcast excellence. Well, thank you very much for that. And I'm listen, I'm still happy that you are uh, uh, out there contributing to the Second Amendment scholarship that we so desperately need. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, I mean, I want to talk specifically about this uh, amicus brief that, uh, that you authored. We talked with Alan Gottlieb of the Second Amendment Foundation last week about this case challenging Maryland's uh, ban on, quote-unquote, assault weapons. Um, and not only do we have, you know, 25 uh, attorneys general from around the country urging the Supreme Court to to hear this case and to hear this challenge, but uh, you are the author uh, of what uh, Alan is calling the scholar's brief. Uh, and we've got a lot of heavy hitters in terms of Second Amendment historians uh, and legal scholars, including yourself, who are also making the case that the court should grant cert here. What is what is the argument that you lay out in, in your brief, Dave? 
Well, since as, as you say, it is a it's a brief of, of law professors and, and also of think tanks, the Independence Institute, where I work, the uh, John Locke Foundation in North Carolina, the, the Cato Institute. And, and we were also joined by uh, the, the Mountain States Legal Foundation, with its, um, which has a special project that works on uh, right to arms issues. But the, the main thing, as you say, is we have a dozen law professors. And so being law professors, uh, we tried to focus on the legal doctrinal uh, issues and, and on legal history. So the, the brief begins by looking at the decisions in the lower federal courts, the circuit courts of appeal that have up, that upheld the Maryland ban and also uh, similar ones in, in other circuits and point out how they are inconsistent with, not just with Heller, because uh, the, the petitioners do a good job on that, but, but inconsistent with Supreme Court precedent more broadly and also in, internally inconsistent. Okay, now, and I want to I want to ask you to explain that a little bit because this case is challenging Maryland's law. But yeah. um, it, you all reference more than just the Fourth Circuit, the controlling opinion right. from the Fourth Circuit, because we've seen other really, I think, egregiously bad opinions from like yes. the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Yeah. Um, so, so what are some of these issues? Because obviously, the argument that Brian Frosch is going to make Maryland's Attorney General is that look. This has already been litigated. The Supreme Court had the opportunity to to take a case uh, a few years ago. They they passed on this case, so this is moot. It's settled. It's you know settled law. Why why do you think the court um, uh, should take up this case, and how are these lower court rulings violating existing precedent? Well, so let, let's take a look at the uh, the Maryland precedent, which is called Colby versus Hogan, um, which was decided uh, a few years by the. Seventh, the Fourth Circuit on bunk uh, after uh, a two to one, which reversed a two to one panel decision that said the Maryland ban should be sent back to the district court and reviewed under strict scrutiny. And then the, the court, the, the full Fourth Circuit took that case on bunk and reversed and said, no, you don't even really have a Second Amendment issue here, um, <laughs> this gun ban, because the Heller case said you can ban dangerous and unusual weapons, which is true. And they couldn't really say these are unusual because they're they're not. They're extremely common. I mean, the AR platforms probably is the most common rifle in American history. Um, but they looked then looked at another phrase in Heller that said it, it's okay to ban uh, the way the Fourth Circuit read it. Um, you can you can ban the M16 fully automatic assault rifle. And from the, the Fourth Circuit extrapolates from this and says you can ban anything that's like a military gun, a gun that's most useful in military service. And we point out the uh, absurdity of that, at, at least in terms of the uh, original meaning of the Second Amendment, because the guns that people brought to militia service in the revolution and thereafter in the early Republic were the ancestors in a sense of the AR-15, which, you know, as you know, some people call it a sport utility rifle because it's good for a lot of things. It's, uh, it's a good hunting gun for game up to a certain size, not, not you know, you wouldn't go moose hunting with it, uh, but for, for deer, it, it's, a, it's a good hunting gun. It's a good personal defense gun for self-defense in the home. And it is a good gun for community defense as in militia service. And those are the kinds of guns that the people had in the uh, 
in the early Republic and the colonial period, these hybrid guns, they weren't exactly muskets and they weren't exactly fouling guns. They were this hybrid that started getting created uh, in New Netherland uh, with the, the Dutch fowler as a uh, bird hunting gun as it got modified by gunsmiths in, the, in, in America for American conditions. And that leads then a century later to what's called the, the semi-military gun, these hybrids, where you have a gun that it's not really the best infantry gun, uh, but it's a good, it's a good, it's a good militia gun. It's a good hunting gun. It's a good self-defense gun. And that was the classic firearm uh, that uh, people that Americans brought uh, to malicious service. So hybrid guns are hybrid long guns are exactly at the core of the original meaning uh, of the Second Amendment. And likewise, the uh, the Seventh Circuit had said. Well, it, it made up its own completely novel test. Uh, but part of that was, well, is this like a gun that was in existence in 1791? Well, these are semi-autos, so they're re repeating guns. And the answer is clearly yes, because the, the Lorenzoni uh, model uh, started out as a pistol uh, was 150 years old by the time uh, this, the Second Amendment was ratified in the Lorenzoni, you, you can guess so, uh, that the uh, guy who invented it was Italian. But it was something that was co widely copied all over the world and even made in the United States. So it, it was not the most common gun because repeating arms were, were quite expensive uh, at, at the time because they, they needed more labor to do the intricate parts fitting. But again, we, we have repeating arms were already on the table. They were there. And then the uh, probably most famous one in the early Republic was the Gerondoni air rifle, mm -hmm. which it's, it's not a powder gun, but it was a powerful gun. You, you, could, you could take an elk with it at 100 yards and it shot 21 or had you, and you could fire it as fast as you could pull the trigger, basically. Um, uh, so it was in that regard, it was similar to a semi-auto. Lewis and Clark carried it on their expedition and used it to, uh, to pretty good effect in the sense that, I mean, they were always going to be a smaller party surrounded by much larger groups of potentially hostile people. And usually they, they meet some folks and say, hey, you know, check out our, uh, our new gun. And they'd fire off a few consecutive shots with it. Uh, astonishing. Um, the Indians who were used to guns, but had never seen something like this before. And that helped uh, protect uh, the deterrent effect of that, helped protect the expedition the whole way. So you know, those are the kinds of things we, we talk about in the brief about the history of arms and, and legal history. Hey, you know, I want to go back to something you said about the Seventh Circuit, um, where they talked about this basically being an, an unusual gun. Well, you know, they didn't have these types of guns in existence at the time of the yeah. founding. Correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't the Supreme Court said that doesn't matter? I mean, in the Catano yes. <laughs> decision or the Catano guidance that came down, that, that was dealing with stun guns. And the, and the court said arms that were not in, around in 1791 are not automatically precluded from Second Amendment protections, right? Yes. And, and of course, Heller said that, too. And, and they, as Heller pointed out, you know, the, the First Amendment protects forms of communication like uh video chats that weren't in existence in 1791 and the fourth amendment protects against types of searches 
such as flyover thermal imaging to look inside a home uh, that didn't exist in 1791 either. So of course the the Constitution has eternal principles, uh, but those principles keep up with the times as technology changes. So yeah, the the, the Seventh Circuit is. Uh, it was Judge Easterbrook who uh, is, I think, strongly of the opinion that he's much smarter than all those uh, <laughs> pea brains on the Supreme Court. So he decided to write his own uh, uh, theory of what the Second Amendment's about. Okay. All right. Um, you know, and so as far as the the chances of the court taking this case, obviously, when you know, in any given case, the the odds are uh, against the court taking a case just because of the sheer number of cases that they hear. Um, I do think it's interesting that they specifically asked uh, Maryland's attorney general to respond to this lawsuit. Um, but are, are there any particular challenges, Dave, with the fact that Colby versus Hogan was not taken up by the Supreme Court? Uh, and now, you know, we've got this new challenge. Is there anything stopping the Supreme Court from saying, yeah, we know that we passed on it a few years ago, but we're, we're going to take another look at this issue now? Um, nothing, nothing stops them from doing that. So okay. as you say, when, when this petition for certiorari was filed, uh, by the, the plaintiffs in um, December, uh, Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch had the opportunity, of course, to file a response and waived that. And that that's back to part of the strategy that makes sense from his point of view. You, you mentioned earlier in the show that, oh, this is hardly important. We, no, we don't even want to bother to like write a response brief. It's so obvious that uh, there's nothing, you know, not, nothing's, nothing to see here, Supreme Court. Right. Well, the, the Supreme Court and in any one justice can do this and you don't know who it does, but or it could have been more justices. But anyway, in, in mid-January, they called for a response and which is in essence is saying, hey, Maryland Attorney General, we actually would like to hear your opinion, what you think about this case. And that, that's a important and strong signal uh, that the court is serious, at least seriously interested in the case. The data show that when you have a normal party, like not, not a prisoner who's say proceeding pro se and just representing himself, mm -hmm. um, but when you have a, a party who's represented by counsel and the court does a CFR call for response, about 10% of those ultimately result in a cert grant. So 10% is way is, is 10 times better yeah. than the odds uh, of a cert grant in general, which is about 1%. And the, the fact that the, the Supreme Court is well aware that when they, a, a denial of certiorari, uh, like the, the cert petition that came from Colby v. Hogan several years ago, is not a decision on the merits. It's just a decision we don't wanna take this case now. It certainly doesn't preclude the, the court uh, from taking it up later. You know, just like in, uh, well, most famously, um, in the early 1980s, the city of Morton Grove, Illinois, banned handguns. The Seventh Circuit upheld that in a two-to-one split decision. And then the, the plaintiffs petitioned for certiorari, and it was 1983. They The Supreme Court denied certiorari. And then later, a different Supreme Court with different personnel uh, decided they were interested in the issue and they granted certiorari in 2007 in the, the Heller case. So, and we have, we have a different court now uh, than we did when, when cert was denied, and it, particularly in that the uh, enigmatic uh, Justice Kennedy, who nobody was really sure what he was gonna do, uh, right. has retired and 
Judge Kavanaugh, when he was on the D.C. Circuit, wrote a dissent in Heller too, uh, a case challenging D.C.'s um, post-Heller laws. And, and part of that, he said, no, clearly reading Heller, you, you, can't be, you just can't ban common arms. You can, you can regulate them, you know, no, no problem with that, mm -hmm. uh, but you, you can't uh, absolutely prohibit them. So that's one, one big step. Um, and then Justice Barrett hasn't written, or when she was judge or professor at Notre Dame, hasn't written on this issue specifically, anything judicially on this issue. But I think it can be suspected she's at least more broadly open uh, to Second Amendment arguments uh, than her predecessor, Justice Ginsburg, was. I, I think that is fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm going to ask you to read the tea leaves just a little bit if we, if you can here, because uh, we are obviously waiting the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin, uh, the case deal with the New York right to carry laws that we're all anticipating is going to come out at some point in June. You, what, what do you think the court is going to do, not only with this uh, current challenge to the uh, Maryland uh, gun ban, but, you know, we've got New Jersey's magazine ban that's still before the court. There are about almost a half dozen cases, I think, right now that the court has just sort of set aside. Do you think yeah. it's it's most likely that, uh, that the court will kind of keep all of these cases in a holding pattern until after the Bruin decision comes out and then they'll start to yeah. figure out, OK, here we're going to kick some of these down to lower courts. Maybe we'll deny cert, but we're going to grant cert over here. I, I think that's based on past behavior, that that's a very reasonable possibility. There's actually in, um, in a few weeks, there's going to be another cert petition filed in a case called Duncan versus Bonta, which is uh, about the Ninth Circuit on Bonk decision recently that, that upheld California's uh, confiscation law uh, for magazines over 10 rounds. So what, okay. we, <clears throat> what we've seen so far from the, the court this term is some Second Amendment related cert petitions have just been denied. You know, you they go into con the conference, court denies them, and that's it. Others seem to have been put on hold. And this probably the, the best scenario, realistic scenario, is this cert petition gets into that category. And then whenever the court uh makes its decision in the New York state right to carry case, which, which could be in May, but as you said, is, is mo it's, it's a blockbuster case and those tend to come out in June and, and usually towards the end of June, uh, that either on the day uh, that the court issues its decision in that case, that day or maybe within a couple of days thereafter, then they will give us the results for all these pending Second Amendment uh, cert petitions, which, as you say, might be would, would likely be to, to deny most of them, but perhaps to grant uh, cert in, in, in one or two. Yeah. OK. And maybe, you know, and maybe remand some of these cases back down to lower courts with guidance based on what comes out of, uh, of the Bruin decision. Uh, you know, I, I guess that's a possibility as well in some of these cases. Uh, anyway, Dave, yeah. listen, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on the program and, and kind of you know getting into some detail about what this particular brief covers. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic that uh, that the court is going to uh, to take this case. I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed anyway. I think they need to because, as you and others have pointed out, I mean the the lower courts have just abused the language of Heller and McDonald to try to uphold these gun bans uh, in the clear face, uh, you know, of, of what these opinions have said and what the plain text of the Second Amendment says. So I am. Uh, yeah. 
like I said, I'm cautiously optimistic. We're going to be moving forward here. I thank you for everything that you're doing to uh, keep our Second Amendment right strong and secure. And I look forward to having you back on the program again to, uh, before long. It's been way too long. I'm looking forward to getting back in it. And I've always had a, a great time coming on your, your programming because you are a, a knowledgeable uh, host. The, the well, host with the most. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm only knowledgeable because I talk to uh, people who are smarter than myself, like you. And, uh, and and that's what makes me educated on this issue. Dave Coble, thank you so much, sir. Look forward to doing this again very soon. Sounds great. Thanks. I do appreciate Dave joining us on the program. It's great talking with him, and I look forward to having him back again very soon. Right now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, our recidivist report as well. In fact, let's start there with a case out of Detroit. Oh, Cameron. I hate it when people named Cameron get in trouble with the law, although my name is not spelled C-A-M-R-O-N. I've got an E in there as well. But uh, Cameron Trimble facing a charge of being a felon in possession of a firearm. And unfortunately for Cameron, police have all kinds of evidence because he posted pictures of him holding a gun on Instagram while he was actively on probation for firearm charges. Yeah, Cameron Trimble is no stranger to the law. Uh, in fact, a Channel 4 in Detroit says his criminal history dates back to 2013 in Michigan. Check check this out. So 2013, he uh, pleads guilty to felony unlawful driving away of an automobile and felony receiving and concealing a stolen motor vehicle, right? That's his first felony charge. Pleads guilty. Two years probation. The next year, felony retail theft between five and $10,000. He pleads no contest. He gets six months in jail, followed by three years probation. January 6th, 2016, so then we got two years. Uh, first degree felony retail fraud, no contest, one year in the Oakland County Jail. 2016, a week later, actually, felony resisting and obstructing police, pleaded guilty one year in the county jail to serve concurrently, by the way, with the charge that he had pleaded guilty to a, a week before, or pleaded no contest to, excuse me. Uh, December of 2016, so same year, felony theft out of Hamilton, Indiana, pleads guilty, 498 days in jail. Uh, also 2000. Okay. So now we're up to 2018, February, 2018, first degree felony retail fraud pleads guilty 18 months to 15 years in the Michigan department of corrections, March of last year, felony carrying a concealed weapon, felon in possession of a firearm, first degree felony stealing or retaining a financial transaction device for retail fraud. Sentenced to two years probation. Now I, I, I will say that, you know, ordinarily and generally speaking, um, I, I am a believer that once you have done your time, you've served your sentence, and you have some of your rights restored, you should have all of your rights restored. I'm not a fan of this idea of, well, okay, you've served your time, you've gotten out of prison, now we'll let you vote, but we won't let you own a firearm. Um, however, Cameron Trimble had not had his rights restored, and even though he had not been convicted of a violent crime, uh, throughout his laundry list of histories, it, it looks like mostly it's retail fraud, obstructing police, felony theft, things of that nature. We're talking about multiple felonies here uh, over the last, well, within the last decade. So I am, I'm kind of surprised that just last year when he was sentenced for being a felon, illegally carrying a firearm, being a felon in possession of a firearm, as well as first-degree felony theft, that Cameron Trimble was sentenced to two years probation without any time behind bars whatsoever. Now, again, Trimble is still on active probation. In October of last year, Detroit police obtained a search warrant for his Instagram account, 
Uh, and they found a post from October the 10th in which Trimble had been streaming a live video and uh, displayed at one point, well, actually at multiple points, uh, a Glock pistol. First, it was on the passenger uh, seat of the car that he was driving. And then he actually picked up the gun and showed it to the camera, saying, you know, I got to keep my G-lock. <laughs> well, probably going to be hard to do that now from behind bars. But uh, yeah, Cameron Trimble, well-known to authorities, well-known to the courts, and uh, should have known better than to uh, brag on social media about his gun, given that he is not allowed by law to own one. Today's armed citizen story from Las Vegas, Nevada, where a uh, burglar who was shot during a home invasion, uh, also well known to law enforcement and was considered a suspect in several other crimes, has actually served time in prison for similar offenses in the past. 28-year-old Leroy Freeman faces 11 counts now of home invasion, nine counts of residential burglary uh, in what police call a, a crime spree across the Las Vegas Valley that started in November did not end until just last week. Uh, Freeman served some time in prison for a series of home invasions back in 2017, according to police. He took a plea deal, and the uh, judge in that case sentenced him to just two years behind bars with a sentence ending in 2020. So we've got a little bit of our recidivist report at work here today as well. Uh, but Freeman was stopped during uh, his last attempted home invasion, or alleged attempted home invasion, when an armed citizen the homeowner whose house was being targeted uh, actually uh, fired shots at a group of burglars who were breaking into his home. Freeman was injured. He was identified when he left his car registered in his family name uh, in front of the crime scene. About an hour later, Freeman showed up at a local hospital with a gunshot wound that required surgery. Uh, police determined that Freeman was a suspect in this burglary spree through phone records, videos, and because, again, he left a car there at the uh, crime Spree, yeah. Uh, after his arrest, police learned that Freeman was renting an apartment in Henderson, Nevada, under a woman's name. Uh, police say that Freeman stole her identity as well. They uh, searched the apartment in early February, finding several stolen items as well as a firearm. He is uh, currently being held on $250,000 bail. The uh, homeowner who defended himself against that group of burglars not facing any charges at all. And finally today, our good deed of the day. In the right place, at the right time. Willing and able to do the right thing. In Vider, Texas, the Vider Police Department honoring three officers recently, Dakota Gaines, uh, Brittany Haley, and uh, a, a third officer, Sergeant Tom Meadows. Um, these three officers helped to save the life of an individual who was having a heart attack a few days ago. Uh, and unfortunately, that individual did not survive, but he did live long enough that he could say goodbye to his family, that his family could say goodbye to him. This was back in December. Dakota Gaines was dispatched on a burglary call in front of a building. When she got there, she saw the man who had called in about the burglary walk out of a building on the property and then just collapse. Um, she thought maybe he had just stumbled to the ground, but when she went over, she noticed that he wasn't really breathing right. He was unresponsive. So she began performing CPR. She uh, alerted other officers that uh, she needed help. Uh, and uh, Sergeant Meadows, Officer Haley, excuse me, by the way, I, I did not mean to uh, misgender uh, Dakota Gaines, but uh, Dakota Gaines is a he, not a she. So Officer Gaines then uh, radioed uh, for help, and other officers responded, including Officer Haley and Sergeant Meadows. Uh, they, three of them performed CPR on the man until EMS crews arrived. Chief Rod Carroll says, as a police officer and a chief, I've heard many radio transmissions. I'm able to recognize the stress in an officer's voice when he's requesting assistance. 
Uh, and at this time, all available on-duty personnel just responded for help. So they were able to get this gentleman breathing again. They were able to get a pulse. They were able to get a heartbeat. He was taken to a local hospital. Uh, and as the uh, Orange Leader in Vitor, Texas reports, um, that allowed him eight more days to say goodbye to his loved ones. Chief Carroll says, as a man, I've lost families and friends over the years. He says, the worst part of losing a loved one unexpectedly is that you cannot say goodbye. He says, this leaves a void in us that must be overcome. But by the complainant surviving eight more days, this allowed his family and friends not to remember Christmas as a time of sorrow in which they lost a loved one but a, a time in which they had the opportunity to say goodbye. Uh, Officer Gaines, by the way, uh, is a, no longer with the uh, uh, Vider Police Department. Instead, uh, he is now working for the um, police department in uh, Beaumont, Texas. But uh, regardless of where he is serving now, we thank him, uh, as well as Officer Haley and Sergeant Meadows, for their very, very good deed. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. We love having you here. Hope you'll check out BearingArms.com throughout the day for even more of the latest Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. We'll be back with another edition of Cam and Company on Monday. But again, check out the website uh, throughout the day, of course, throughout the weekend as well. And we'll keep you up to date on everything you need to know about what's going on in the fight to keep your Second Amendment rights safe and secure. If you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber. All you have to do is go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. We'll uh, not only be thanking you for showing your support for our independent pro-Second Amendment journalism, but uh, we'll offer you exclusive content. Uh, analysis, news story, stuff you won't find anywhere else because, again, your support really does make a difference and it matters to us. So thank you again. Until we talk again, be well, be safe, and be free.